This idea of like risk taking or whatever is, is again one of those sort of platitudes that, that I think people miss the essence of. And, and the key is you want to encourage environment for people to be able to take a risk. And when it fails, they don't get put on now the, like the bad projects. Just do the right thing. And people know the right thing. They do. I had been, you know, 15 years in the Silicon Valley and I'd seen every trend de jour. And I really wanted just to work with grown-ups. Welcome back to Zero to IPO, a show that looks at each stage of growing a company from just a tiny little idea to a massively successful public company. On today's show, we're going to talk about culture. Oh, you want me to introduce myself? I was ready to go. Go. I'm going. My name's Joshua Davis, and I am the co-founder of Epic Magazine and a contributing editor at Wired. My name's Frederick Harris. I'm the chief operating officer and co-founder at Okta. So today on the episode, we're going to talk about culture, uh, which is this kind of wishy-washy thing, and, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of founders don't think of that it matters. Like, why, why does it matter? Well, it matters because you're trying to build not just a company, not just focused on revenue, not just focused on products, but it's a living, growing organism. And in our business, in high technology, it's about how do you attract, hire, retain, grow the best people in the world. And frankly, if you're fortunate enough to build a company from one, two, three, five employees at the company to 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, they are the ones driving the, the company forward. And so today on the show, we're going to drill down on that. We're going to hear from Patty McCord, the woman behind the game-changing Netflix culture deck, Sequoia Capital's Carl Eschenbach, Box's Aaron Levy, and Salesforce.com's Parker Harris. This is kind of an all-star lineup of culture pros. And we're going to start today with Aaron Levy of Box, which he originally came up with in college, eventually taking it public at a valuation of $1.7 billion. Here's Aaron explaining why he likes it when his employees talk back. Every day I'm being challenged, you know, a dozen times by, by right, somebody. Yep, yep. Um, so, you know, I, I'd hope that that's what's happening. And I, I see all the time situations where, where, uh, where I'm, I have some massive blind spot, blind spot and I just don't have the context for something. And you want to be challenged constantly because maybe I'm right. Maybe they're right. Maybe neither of us are right. And we have to get to the right conclusion as quickly as possible to make the right call. And, uh, and, you know, I, I come in with 13 years of context about decisions we've made and, yep. and, and, and the business. And in some cases, that's incredibly helpful because I can accelerate decisions in some areas. And in some cases, that's obviously incredibly, uh, that's an incredible liability because I might think that we've tried something, you know, one way, it didn't work that one time, but somebody has a new version of that. I'm, I'm looking at it and thinking that it's the same thing when it's not. And if they don't challenge back and say, no, actually you're, you're, you're seeing this in the wrong way, um, then we might miss an, a massive opportunity because I'm being too myopic because I'm, I'm kind of basing something off of our, you know, hi history and in, in how we've done something. And all the time we're making better decisions when we can be challenging each other in that way. So we have a, we, ha we have a core value, which is be candid and assume good intent. And it's one of our seven core values. And the idea is, is kind of built into the, the, the obviously the, the value, which is, um, you know, be as candid with one another as possible. Trust that, that the person you're being candid with is not trying to screw you. It's not, yeah. not, it's not intentionally doing something yep. stupid. So start with a, a foundation of trust, but then work from there 
to come to the, the, the best solution possible. Yeah, I have two questions. First one is, how do you have seven? We used to have seven. Mm. I got told repeatedly, no one can remember seven things. We had to shorten them to four. I got yeah. browbeat by this. <laughs> and then I come in here and you're like, I got seven. And not yeah. only that, they're each like three sentences. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen like the full paragraph versions then. <laughs> no, I um, no, I mean, I, I, I'm not gonna claim that seven's the best practice. I, I, I'm I'm sure that, and I'm sure it used we to be like- We have four words. Oh, yeah. They're just words now. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I- do you this, know the seven? I do know the seven. Okay. Um, I would say that the this came a couple years after the garage period. Yeah. But you know, I I cannot implore entrepreneurs, founders, anybody enough. Uh, go in as early as possible and make sure your your culture is as defined as possible in terms of what you're trying to create. I, I think, unfortunately. These, this idea of core values and principles has, has turned a lot into platitudes in, in, in companies. And then it gets kind of taken, you know, not seriously, or people get cynical or skeptical about them. I, I, I'm a massive believer that you can run your company off of them, um, that it can be responsible for 80 to 90% of your decisions. It can simplify those sort of key moments as a company when you have to make a call of going left or going right. Uh, and I think all, all, all companies need to have their set of unique values. So, so for ours, it's blow our customers' minds, which is sort of the customer success one. Um, and we, we are constantly thinking about how can we kind of take the customer experience to another level. Um, and I'll only focus on the ones that I think are most kind of the, the deepest and, and internalized. Um, uh, uh, take risks, fail fast, get shit done. Uh, I just mentioned, you know, be candid, assume good intent. Another is be an owner. Uh, when we see something that we don't feel is, is a proud moment, uh, in a decision uh, that could be an ethical, uh, you know, moment uh, uh, decision. It could be it could be one related to HR. It, it gives us such a uh, straightforward uh, kind of north star of how to decide, you know, where to land uh, on an outcome. And so we expect all of, all boxers to, you know, quote unquote, make mom proud or make bad dad proud or you know, at this point, just make anybody that that you feel uh, uh, that you uh, that, that you that you want to be making proud. And that gives us this this really again simple navigation device. Uh, in, in making sure that we're aligning the culture with the kind of um, uh, environment that we want to create. So, so those are the, some of the values that we live by and, uh, and we, we do feel are, are fundamentally important to running the company. Certainly written down. Are they written down on the website? Uh, they're on the website. They're on every employee badge. Right. They're yep. you know, all throughout the, yep. the experience. There's something to the mythos of the garage and in Silicon Valley that there's like, this is where the product is born. This is where you're doing the engineering and, and listening to you. I think that perhaps there's something else that's really important that people overlook in those early days, which is establishing a culture. Yep. Uh, you guys came into it already knowing each other, but you had to formulate it. You had to like build a company around these friendships. How important was that to you in your early thinking in those days about like, we have, we have a culture here that's gonna make us successful. It's not just the product. I think we didn't know we didn't know how unique it was early on because we we I mean, because we we none of us uh, had ever worked at another company other than through an internship and 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 so it's, it was hard to sort of you know realize that that this way of operating this way of challenging each other this sort of we're going to debate about a you know really deep business topic but then two minutes later look like best friends on a completely different unrelated issue. We didn't know that that was this like unique thing, um, but it was early executives that kind of came in and said, hey, like there's something special that we have to keep at the core of everything we do. That's where sort of starting to say, okay, let's write down our values. Let's see what what is it about this sort of irreverence and this pushing back on each other and this kind of risk-taking approach because you ultimately trust each other. How do you, how do you sort of, you know, uh, codify that and then maintain it as we, as we scale? And I think that um, that was something we had no 
we had we just had no understanding of, and it was was really driven by uh, uh, kind of early employees to recognize that that we we could build a different kind of company if we maintained this set of values and this set of way of operating. Is it possible as a company grows? I mean, you guys have thousands of employees now. How do you maintain that culture? Is it even, you know, is it possible to maintain as, as you turn into yeah. something different? I get feedback all the time. And I think it's, again, a testament of the, the being candid culture where somebody will, will say, hey, you know, you, uh, you went in too hard on that message or that issue, or, or you're going to confuse people and distract them by, by, you know, saying that one thing about, about this part of the business yeah. or product. And it's it's obviously an important reminder that 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 uh, that your communication has bears a lot of weight and um, and that you've got to make sure that that you're using it judiciously. At the same time, you know, I I I, I have uh, this this uh, I have a lot of uh, uh, sort of not fully formed ideas that I will throw out on the table, and 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 you want to debate those things, and and it will be distracting at times, and people will be like, oh shit, the CEO said that, so like we have to take it more seriously, and. And I kind of want to like have like a disclaimer that says, don't take this more seriously until I, unless I say, take it more seriously, because I want to be able to just go and hash out an idea. And are people okay with that? I mean, as you're, as the CEO, as you say. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to create a, a safe environment where, where I think that there's some cultures where that's not okay whatsoever because people have, because there's like folklore of like, oh, that one team got fired for doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong idea. If, you know, if you create an environment where people don't, you know, get fired for having crazy, you know, ideas um, uh, from a brainstorming standpoint, and they say the wrong thing, or or there's a there's a there's a uh, a level of of um, support for risk taking, and I think you know this this idea of like risk taking or whatever is is again one of those sort of platitudes that that I think people miss the essence of, and, and the key is you want to encourage environment for people to be able to um, take a risk. I don't know that we're world class in this, but but you have to find a way where it's okay to Go out, do something that is a, a, a well-thought-out risk. When it fails, be able to go right back at it and, and try again in a different area. Um, and obviously, when it succeeds, you, know, you, complete, you, you continue to parlay that and, and, and build on top of that. But, but it is really about this encouraging of risks and then supporting and learning from failure, and, but, but not sort of uh, shunning failure in such a way that everybody is so afraid to do it that, that you then end up kind of causing no risk to happen whatsoever. Let me, let me just be very clear. This is a journey. <laughs> uh, you're never as focused as anybody wants you to be. Uh, and I'm still trying to, I, what I can guarantee anybody who's any boxer today uh, is that I'm much more focused today than, than I was five or 10 years ago. And, uh, and, and that might be shocking to, again, people that work with me on a regular basis. But, uh, but again, this is a journey. And, and so I've had to evolve. How do I uh, how do I find a way to to work collaboratively in such a way where I can I can hopefully lend some value in the in the experiences that I've had of over 13 years of seeing this market and this business and maybe in a couple areas where I think that that I can uniquely add some perspective um, without disempowering you know people and going out and doing uh, you know great work and and that's that's very very tough and I'd give myself a C minus at, at doing it in practice but I know that I can get to B plus at some point I, I believe I can. <laughs> Freddie, Aaron talks about being challenged a dozen times a day by people. Is that your experience or do you just like live in a cocoon and nobody says shit to you? The latter. 
<laughs> uh, must be nice. Uh, it's actually not that nice. Um, I, I actually don't know that I agree with Aaron because I bet that he, very much like myself and other entrepreneur leaders, don't actually get a lot of the core information back on a daily basis about what's going on in the company, about how it's going with anything, including the culture. Why? Because no one wants to give the founder bad news. So actually figuring out what's going on at the ground level, what's going on inside your company, with your employees, with your investors, with your customers, you have to be very good at listening and reading those tea leaves. How do you do it? How do you, how do you get out of your cocoon as a CEO, COO, founder? Yeah, I just prefer not to, and I just sit in the cocoon. <laughs> you just stay in your cube? Yeah, it's great. It sounds awesome. <laughs> Everyone's just telling me I'm a genius, and it looks beautiful every day. But I've heard you talk about walking around and forcing yourself to talk to people. This is something that a lot of experienced, seasoned, successful entrepreneurs have mentioned to me, including some of the folks we've had on the show, like Carl Eschenbach. Some of the key things they've done, for example, is when they walk around the office, they're not staring at their phone. They put their phone in their pocket, and they look at other people, and they look them in the eyes, and they say hello, and they ask them how it's going. Those are some of the key moments where you're trying to build that culture. You're trying to foster that. One of the guiding lights that Aaron cites is this concept of making mom proud. That's how he makes a lot of decisions and, and uses that as a barometer. As the company grows, that becomes increasingly important. It can't be just the acts that you do as the founder, though that's important. You have to establish these kinds of benchmarks. How did you do that at Okta? Well, first of all, ideally, Josh, these are things that you do naturally. So you want to build the culture in a way that makes sense. It makes sense for you. makes sense for your organization. makes sense for the people around you. But, so, but to some people, it's not natural. It's like not everybody has the full tool set. I got it. I'm just saying hopefully it's a natural thing, right, Josh? If it's not. If it's not, though, you need to go out of your way and think about how you want to be explicit or how you want to do specific things to drive the kind of culture you want. Uh, I can think of a very good example. At Okta, we went public on Friday, April 7, 2017. Not that I remember the date and the time, but if I did, that's what it would be. Monday, April 10, 2017 was a Monday, just like any other Monday for me. So I was on a sales call at 7 a.m. Pacific time. I wanted to make it very clear, not only to myself, but to my organization and to those sales folks and to the executives around it, but even to the folks who are working every day with customers, trying to find new customers, trying to find new prospects. Monday is just a day like any other. IPO, awesome. Feel good about it. For the weekend, pat yourself on the back. Monday morning, it's back to work. So that, Josh, is just one example of leading from the friend, of behaving the right way. But as the company grows, as things change, you also have to be flexible. You have to understand things are going to change within the company, within the people, within the leadership, and, and that's things you have to get comfortable with. It might also mean you're a workaholic. That sounds like something we should take offline. As a company grows, people have to evolve as well. You evolved in your role. You weren't doing the same thing week after week, month after month, right? That's right. Our next guest, Carl Eschenbach, had a similar experience as he grew VMware from 200 people to 20,000 people. And he learned something really important about scaling culture. First of all, you have to create a, a culture where feedback is welcome um, and constructive criticism is welcome. So when you see things happening that you don't agree with or it's not part of the value systems of the company because they do slightly change as you get bigger, you have to call them into attention. And unfortunately, at times, um, you have to make a public action of certain situations 
to make people recognize like they didn't do the right thing and we're not going to tolerate it. Um, so there are those tough times you have to do that. I remember I used to say at every single sales kickoff conference, here's your guardrails. Here's the guidelines. We're going to give you all of them. If you go outside of them, there's probably a good chance you're going to crash. And I used to say, you all look absolutely beautiful in orange, but not orange with your hands behind your back. So the caution is everything you say, everything you do, every business transaction you, you, you are involved in directly or indirectly through a channel in your customer, ask yourself to use your line, am I okay if this is printed on the front of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times? If the answer is yes, proceed. If there's a slight even answer of no, do not proceed. It's not worth it. Just do the right thing. And people know the right thing. They do. It's whether they choose, right, to do it, right? You know, I always say character is defined by what you do when people aren't looking, right? So when you're alone and you have to make those tough decisions, that's when your real character is defined, not what you're saying and you're in a public setting. So that's one thing that you can, I mean, you can manage things like that and you have an idea of what's going on when there's 200 people, when there's 500 people. How do you make sure that that, those ideals, that approach continues when you have 20,000 people? So, so Freddie, it is hard. Like, don't get me wrong. It's hard. And, And issues pop up in the most far remote places in the world. They just do. Um, But, you know, you can have systems and controls in place. A lot of it is training and enablement, right? A lot of it is who delivers the training and enablement. So do you have senior executives who are part of the messaging around your your value system, right, and your goals um, and the importance of the, the, the compliance around the company? So I think it's how you message it, the frequency of which you mention it. Um, And, you know, just making sure when you start to get big, the, the best way to ensure success around compliance, governance, and controls is by making sure you have the right leaders in the right job. And those right leaders have the right mentality and the right ethics personally and professionally because they're the ones who are really going to drive this message for you. As much as you can say it from a pulpit or from a stage, when everyone leaves a sales kickoff from Freddie and they all go back to their things, they start to do who's there. It's the leadership that's going to really measure it. And then when something happens, you address it. But I think it's enablement, it's training, it's a lot of communications, um, you know, give, provide those guidelines. You do the best you can, but you're always going to have scenarios. I'm not going to be naive, right, and say that we don't have issues. Everyone will. It's not if something happens, it's when it does. And when it does, it's then about how you react, how you message it, and how you set the example of this will not be tolerated. How do you see that coming? How do you know that's happening? Can you see around the, what do you do? That is a great question because admittedly, I made a number of mistakes in this area because when the business starts to accelerate, it's going well. You can get into a bad habit and you always want to promote from within when you can, but you can over-rotate. And a number of times, including myself, I just was like growing so fast, I made decisions to put people in these roles in management. And quite frankly, I did them personally a disservice. And you just know, and this is the other thing we talked about. What, what, what was you, What was wrong? 
because they just didn't know how to manage. Just because you're a tremendous individual contributor doesn't mean you have management skills, you have communication skills, you can connect with people the right way. So, Freddie, we made mistakes in this area. I made mistakes in this area. And then I finally came up with this mentality, and I use it today, actually, with all of the younger companies I'm fortunate enough to work with. We are now going to hire people that VMware can grow into. We're not going to hire people that can grow with VMware. And we basically said, we are going to be successful. We're going to scale this company. We're going to crush this market. And we're going to go get people who are way more senior than all of us, including myself. And also, quite frankly, on one hand, it forced tough conversations with a lot of people. But those tough conversations were actually very much welcomed by the person on the other side of the desk. Because typically when you're growing fast, you don't sit down and talk about, here's a personal growth plan. This is what you need to do to get better. This, that, that, that. You know, we didn't stop promoting from within. We slowed it down. It actually forced a conversation that actually helped everybody. I love that line of Carl's where he's like, every one of you looks beautiful in orange, but not orange with your hands behind your back. Especially when he says it with that level of sincerity. Yeah. This is something that you need to to spread in, in a company this sense of, of morality. It has to come from the top. You have to set the standard. Yeah, and I think it's pretty interesting if you compare here Aaron and Carl, Josh, they actually have pretty similar approaches to company culture, but just like very different ways of executing it, right? It's fair to say they both have a pretty solid sense of the importance of culture. And I think that's something that our next guest might just be the world's greatest expert at. Our next guest has a very strong perspective and vision for what company culture should look like. You're talking about Patty McCord. I'm talking about Patty, exactly. Patty famously created the Netflix culture deck as the head of HR at Netflix, a document that is so significant, it went viral and changed not just technology companies in Silicon Valley, but corporate culture around the world in many respects. She's the author of the book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. So let's hear from Patty about where it all began. I've been thinking about culture for 30 years. So by the time I got it at Netflix, I was halfway through my journey. And at that point, I was very cultural anthropology focused, which is culture is about rituals. Culture is about what you say. Culture is about the stories that you tell, you know, the fireside chats with employees that happen all the time, the stories that keep getting told, the origin story, the right? The lore, right? The, the celebrations, the rituals, the, and, and I had been, you know, 15 years in the Silicon Valley and I'd seen every trend de jour. And I had come from where I thought, you know, we held engineers in particular up as godlike creatures who were to be, you know, um, fawned over and nurtured so they could do amazing work. And the rest of us were kind of their handmaidens. And I was just kind of sick of it. So I wanted a place where, and I couldn't have articulated this then, I couldn't have, but I really wanted just to work with grownups. Yeah. Which I mean, is, that was the most important thing to me is like the, the number one thing I wanted that was different than I had experience was just not tolerating people when they don't act like adults. Right. Right. There's a lot of that in Silicon Valley. So how do you, I mean, you can obviously just 
not hire people who don't act like adults. You can fire people who don't act like adults. Uh, are those the two key components? <laughs> or is there more no, to it in terms there's of encouraging a, There's people? a lot more to it. On the Netflix story, you know, figuring out how to do that holistically and systemically through an organization takes years. So the original Netflix culture deck took us 10 years to write. I mean, there were chapters in there that took me four years to pull off. Like, Was the original deck just like two slides? No, the, frig- the original deck was the first nine behaviors that we value, the behaviors that you should expect from each other when you work here. So what it is, it's about constantly evolving the who are we, how do we operate, how do we act, how do we think about it, how do you think about it when you're a 30-person company, when you're a 300-person company, when you're a global company. I mean, these are all different things. And it's this constant evolution and nurturing and paying attention to it. And you say that it's not... You say it changes, mm-hmm. perhaps, as the company changes, as the company gets bigger. Can you talk about some examples of how the culture might shift from when you're 30 people to when you're 3,000? So that's where the concept of freedom and responsibility, which sort of came later in the deck, is so important with adults, which is at some point when it's bigger and everybody doesn't know what everybody's doing, then you have to create discipline around communication, around objectives, around, I mean, as soft as it sounds like there's a really important part of trusting your colleagues to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the Netflix culture deck, it's called context, not control. Mm -hmm. But it's basically like, if I'm going to be surrounded by adults who are really smart and capable and we're clear about what we need to get done, at some point I need to not be in the meeting with you. I need to assume that you're having meetings with the right people and getting the right stuff done. So I know that when I, um, when I talk to other entrepreneurs, they often see that there are some people who are very good at the 20 to 200 zone. And then at some point they end up perhaps becoming the bottleneck or not being able to scale enough or delegate enough or trust, as you're saying. And so you really make a point of having a good experience on the way out the door. Yep. Talk to us more a little bit about how you think about that, where that came from, because that's not a natural, that's not a natural thing. The natural thing is like, you're fired. You're not, you're fired. We're not part of the family. You said, Hey, it's not about a family, yeah. by the way. Yeah. So, you know, that's like the natural personal thing. It's like, Oh, it's hard to have that conversation. You and- know, we talked about the team versus family thing for a lot longer than it appears um, because it didn't like, okay, uh, we had a layoff. I stood in front of everybody and said, we're not your family. You know, we don't lay off your children. Um, this is a team. We're going to start talking about it as a team. Uh, and when you start changing that mindset, that changes things. If you have a crazy idea, which all startups are, and you put together the right people who could actually hone it into something that might actually make money or gain customers at some point. And you start, uh, you you develop a strategy and strategy is not what you're going to do. Strategy is what you're not going to do. The ones, the companies that are going to make it are the ones that figure out one thing, focus on it, do it extraordinarily well, right? So when you get that, all of those magic things happen at the same time. You got enough money, you got the right people, you've got a compelling product prospect, you've got customers, you're going to have revenue. It's like, okay, all that comes together. Then it's about execution. And almost instantly, the things, the problems you have to solve go from problems of difficulty, which we just talked about, Mm -hmm. which is ones where you just keep pushing until you figure it out, to problems of complexity or scale. 
It's about what are your priorities? What are you going to do? What are you not going to do? What is important to do? That is so, I mean, I totally screwed that up. So three years ago, we had a specific problem. I went out and hired the perfect person to hire this, to solve the specific problem, which we did mm-hmm. very well in like, I don't know, 18 months. Yeah. And then I tried to find another role for the person. And then sure enough, like six or 12 months later, we, we parted ways. And, but I wasn't smart enough to say up front, I was like, well, this is a good person and he, he can do a lot of different things. So we'll find a role for him afterwards. But this is a problem I need to solve right yeah, now. Yeah, which is like the, 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 I think the essence of what we're talking about here, right? We want to talk about being an entrepreneur and totally. being an innovator and doing all this stuff. And yet we walk into these relationships mm-hmm. with these implied contractual relationships that haven't ever been true. So let's talk about something that's in the Netflix deck since you've been bringing it up that you clearly thought, oh, this is how it was always done and we're going to do it totally differently. And it has impacted, we can talk about positively and negatively, uh, generations of employees and employers thereafter, Okta included, myself included, no PTO or unlimited PTO, whatever. How did you guys come up with that? Because that's the first time I ever saw it printed anywhere. This is how we came up with it. Um, We'd gone public. Uh, What we used to do was you accrued a day of pay period, uh, like 28 days a year or whatever it was, however many pay periods there were. And it was an honor system and you trued up when you left the company. So I basically didn't keep track of it. And I kept track of the work that you got done. And when you left the company, I'd say, what do I owe you? And you'd be like, what's the maximum? And I'd be like, you know, the maximum is 28 days, yeah. whatever it is. And you'd be like, okay, so I, I, you owe me 29 days. And I'd be like, okay, great. Hey, it's so great. Your trip to Maui turned out to be so fun after you were sick. So long this year, it's great. Right. And I think, bye-bye. Right? Cause you just scam it. Right. right. So, um, but that's an anomaly because most people didn't do that. At the time, and so this is in the early 2000s, at the time, these um, investigators were very rigid and they were saying, here are here's an appropriate time off policy. You may use this one. Now, remember, I actually was a vice president of human resources. Mm-hmm. And that person on my left ear says, of course you have to pay, have paid time off. Everybody's got paid time right. off. This is, this is what Microsoft this does. This is what everybody does, yeah. right? I mean, this is the rules. It's in every handbook I've ever copied in my life. You Put see. my own logo on, right? So I go research it and I can't find any, in California, I can't find any particular laws or statute that speak particularly to uh, paid time off for exempt employees. So then my Patty experience brand kicks in. Have I ever fired a salaried grown up, right? A salaried professional for being tardy or being absent? No. Actually, if I stop to think about it, I've said goodbye to people who work all the time and they're weird. That's the issue. You know, the issue is not, I mean, it's just like, so you say goodbye to people and it has nothing to do with how much time they're there. It's like, sometimes you're like, please go home, please get a life, please be normal. You're getting weird on us. And so I realized that, and I also realized that if I took a traditional approach, then I would have to create a team of people in HR whose job it was to police other people's time off with zero knowledge of what was the appropriate thing to do. And was that the aha moment where you're like, well, maybe we just have unlimited time off? No, maybe we just say take enough time to have the life that you want and need to have and get your work done. 
But we had, but I- What did you call that? Oh, let's see. What do we call it? We called it the no time off, time off policy that wasn't a policy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what, that was the technical term? That was the technical term? I don't remember what the technical term was. The no time off, time off policy. I probably have it somewhere, but basically (laughs) it was, the, the concept was managed locally, which was the hard part, honestly, that maybe when everybody else in the Valley copied us, they didn't stop and think, what would it take to manage this logically? And what it takes is, it takes really good frontline managers who are really, really articulate about what needs to get done, what quality looks like. I know people that like the the last thing that I would want out of a brilliant, you know, product genius is for them to work all the time. Because a lot of times those guys, one of our, our head of product, he, he was um, into backcountry hiking and building his own igloo. And I remember thinking he needs more igloo time. <laughs> Seriously, and this guy needs to get out of this building and in these because igloo time is when we get our new ideas, right? right? There's so, the no time off, time off policy. Then there's the igloo policy. That's what you get into the context. Yeah. Why did we? Why do we do this anyway? That's my. I know one of your questions is why do I hate the annual performance review? Let's talk about it. Um, why do you? So there's two things usually that the annual performance review gets caught up in. Is is it a compensation review? Is it that you pay for performance? Is it about your performance. So let's say it was about your performance. Let's say we believed that if I give you feedback on your performance, you'll perform better. Yep. Why on God's earth would you do that only once a year? Literally, there's nothing else you do in your life that you're good at that you do once a year. Nothing. So people say to me, you're so good at giving feedback. How do you do it? I'm like, yeah, I practice. Actually, you got, okay. I think you get your CPR renewed every two years. But okay, I get your point. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm okay. I love the methodology. It just should happen more often. And when it happens more often, it's more natural and you get better at it. And here's, let me dive into feedback just a little more level because it's important. We tend to think that feedback means constructive criticism, which means telling you something bad in a nice way that doesn't hurt your feelings. That maybe if you, so that the problem with that kind of- Also known as the shit sandwich. The shit sandwich or guilt tripping. I always say as parent, you know how to do that. And so now I say, Frederick, that bad thing you did, that was bad. And I've told you it was bad before. And when you do it again, you better feel bad. And then the next time you do it, <laughs> he already feels bad. I right. feels terrible right now. And, 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 well, the next time you Which do one? it, Which one? Which one Next time you do it, because you will, you'll feel bad, yeah. right? So I mean, it works, but it's really not efficient. And what we completely forget about in feedback is to say, right here, right now, dude. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You spoke up at this meeting. You had an opinion. You had a solution. Yeah. You will do that five more times today because it feels great because it's exactly what I wanted you to do. So the other thing about feedback is that it means nothing if it's not actionable, right? It has to be, you know, this thing you do, it'd be better if you did this other thing because it was result in that. Okay, so now I'm going to slide over to compensation. Let me ask you a question about um, something you've talked about in the past, which is the idea that uh, as an employee, the employees should be periodically reminding and asking their managers, hey, how valuable am I to you? So let me tell you what I tell women's groups when I talk to them. I say, look, when your company's all talking about engagement, they didn't put a ring on it, right? You are not engaged to them. You don't owe them anything. And oh, by the way, when you go interview with somebody, you are not cheating on your husband. You're finding out what you're worth because compensation is market-based, particularly here. 
right? You are worth what somebody else will pay you. That does not mean you're worth what the highest person who's ever made money in that job is worth, worth because they may have more skills and experience than you do. But one of the ways to find out what you're worth is go interview. What companies do you think are doing it right? I mean, who do you admire when it comes to culture? The companies that I admire are ones that know who they are and are true to themselves. You know, part of the reason I wrote the book was people would flop down the Netflix culture deck and say, do, we want to do that. You know, we've been here a year now and we're ready to do that. And I'd remind them that it took us 10 years to write that. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's this ever-evolving thing, and there's no way that the Netflix culture is the right culture for another company. I think that might be one of the key insights that I've gotten from this conversation, which is that the team that you start with is, you know, a great team, an amazing team, an inspiring team. But if you're really going to grow this thing, if it's going to become huge— you have to come up with a new amazing team at each stage, mm -hmm. and it's not going to be the same amazing team. Mm -hmm. And it may, for a transition period, feel like you're losing the soul of the company, you're losing the character, this family, um, but you build a new family. Well, I don't, oh, you don't like I the don't, word, you don't I don't like the word do, I don't do family at all. You don't like the word family. No, I don't like it. Great teams are not families who all go to church together and right it, it's great teams are people that come at problems from really different solutions. So that's that owning it as a leader and understanding where your blind spots are and making sure you surround yourself with people that complement them is just part of it. And the other thing is get better at it. That's why I'm saying about the annual performance review, especially as leaders, you should be really good at giving people feedback in the moment. There's a number of things that Patty talks about, Freddie, that are controversial. Uh, let's take, for example, this idea of unlimited time off. She was one of the first to institute it, and it has now become completely the norm in Silicon Valley and in many other places. Uh, what's the policy at Okta? How do you guys think about it? What's the impact? Interesting. You say unlimited time off. That's actually not what it is. So what Patty did is she got rid of the PTO policy, paid time off. And she said, we're not going to have a paid time off policy anymore. Um, and I think it's very interesting if you think about why there was an existing PTO policy that has grown up through companies. It was originally back to the factory days where you would go and you would clock in, and for every amount of hours that you clocked in, you literally punched a card. I remember very early when I was 17, I interned in a warehouse and I actually had to punch a card and that would say how long I was working. For every one of sets of four or eight hours, you would get 15 minutes off or whatever it was. Well, that's not how life works anymore, especially in the high-tech industry. People are working early, they're working late, sometimes they work on the weekends, sometimes they don't work for a few days. So I think that's actually a very good example of a very good idea that was progressive, that we have adopted, I believe successfully. What you're trying to do is you're trying to run your company in the way that makes the best sense for you, for your employees, for the culture you're trying to create, for all these other business initiatives. You don't want the tail wagging the dog. You don't want a number of policies that are antiquated making you behave a certain way. You actually want the policies to reflect the way you want to run your business. I think it's a great example of change. Patty also talks about the idea that great teams are not families who all go to church together. In fact, great teams are a group of people who come at problems from very different perspectives. Our next guest, Josh, actually believes the complete opposite. Parker Harris, one of the founders of Salesforce.com, he's going to talk to us here about Ohana, which is the concept of family and how Salesforce really thinks about their employees as part of the family 
and how they can all find success together in this joint communal environment. And given that Salesforce has consistently been ranked as one of the best places to work in tech, it's fair to say he knows a thing or two about building great company culture. Parker's co-founder at Salesforce.com is Mark Benioff, and we heard the story of how they met in an earlier episode of this show. This time around, we're going to hear more about how Parker and Mark got Salesforce.com up and running, and how a mutual appreciation of Hawaiian shirts helped them make it happen. At Metropolis Software, it's kind of ironic. I guess it's a California thing. So this, the, uh, the co-founders of that company uh, practice what they call the Aloha Fridays, which was, you know, on Friday, you get together as a company, you have beers or wine, you know, and food and, um, you know, hang out and as, a, as a family. So on Fridays... I do it less often now, but on Fridays, uh, we would always wear uh, Aloha shirts. Do you do that? We, we do that. We yeah. do that. Uh, every Friday when we have an all hands, That's I'm wearing great. a Hawaiian shirt. Nice. And every new employee is allowed to expense one Hawaiian shirt to me personally. Very to, few of them do it. To you personally? Yeah, to me personally. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You got to encourage it. Uh, yeah, my kids always laugh. They're like, where are you going? Um, ironically, my son just got one from Patagonia and we're like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, this is cool now. And I'm like, oh, see, I started it that long ago or I participated in it that long ago. Your kids are laughing at you because they see you in a Hawaiian shirt and they say, where are you going? Where are you going? And you say, I'm going to work. I'm going to work. Yeah. Uh, and so we did that early on and, you know, it was just kind of came from our background, from Mark's background every Friday and we would get together and, you know, hang out, um, you know, same as we did at our previous company. Were you having the Friday gatherings because you were like, hey, it's the end of the week, let's have a beer, let's relax, it'll be fun? Or was it a very deliberate you know, strategy around building culture? Or was it just like, hey, I just want to relax on Friday? Well, Freddie knows this term. We are not strategic as a company. We're tactical, and tactics dictate strategy. So we do not sit back and say, uh, strategically, we're going to build culture strategically. You know, it... it it evolved, you know, through who we were and, and, and early on, cultures formed by the founders. And, and you can't really change it. That, you can't change a culture. I mean, you can certainly hurt it and erode it, but it doesn't change. You know, it, it's like, can I change your personality? Um, you know, you'll change as you grow, as you mature, but, you know, you're still the person, you know, that you were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. You know, culture... Uh, agile processes, you know, all these things are so easy when you're 10 people, 20 people, 30, 40 people. It just happens. It's great. You know, so I was, of course we were agile, 20 developers, no problem. Um, but you start to need to invest in these things as you get bigger. You said sometimes that culture can erode. You said, look, it's not going to go completely away, but have you, can you think of a time when it started to erode? And what you did to kind of catch it or bring it back or pull it back or? Well, something, uh, it's not, I don't think the culture has ever eroded. Uh, I think that people's behavior cannot align to the culture sometimes, not broadly. But uh, so, for example, something we're talking about right now is, you know, how we're the customer success company. We're all about trust and customer success. Number one, we love our customers. And that's what we talk about all the time. We say our culture is customer success. We're seeing examples where we're maybe not living up to that. And we're hearing that in a reflection uh, from our customers. So um, 
So what can we do about it? And I'd say listening is probably the biggest thing. And are you hearing all the voices that you need to hear? Certainly as a leader, a CEO, there's the risk that you'll, you know, only be listening to what people want to tell you. And we're the customer success company. Things are great. So we must not have any problems. That's kind of what we were hearing. And we listened to some new voices and we got some different answers. Or no one wants on. to give you the bad news. It's probably no one hard in your situation at this point where you are co-founder of the company, chief technology officer, member of the board. Congratulations. Thank you. People don't want to show up and be like, hey, Parker, I got all sorts of bad news. Check it out. Yeah. Like that's not the first thing that people think about. Yeah. So sometimes it might be hard to also get that feedback. How do you get that feedback? You know, showing that you always want to hear that opposing view uh, and then asking for it. You have to ask, you know, people will not tell you. So I can't wait for you to tell me. I have to go and say, Freddie, what am I doing wrong? You know, how, how are we doing as partners with Okta? What more can we do? Uh, and really push and ask and eventually you'll get the answers. How do you empower 30,000 people? Yeah. Or whatever the number is. To, to own the way that they either do the culture or talk to customers. I mean, how, how do you do that? I mean, what are, clearly you've done something right. What are, what are some of the tips and tricks you've seen? Or It's a lot of investment. So clearly all the classic stuff of onboarding, uh, you know, when I think part of our culture, we created a 501c3 public charity when we started the company. So every new employee, you know, in their first week, they do a day of volunteering together. It's part of like teaching them that this is part of who you are at Salesforce and our expectation. You know, it, 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 that's, Ohana is not our employees. Ohana is our family. It's our customers, our partners, our investors, you know, our stakeholders, our employees, everyone together. And my advice is don't try to draw a firm line between, you know, what you're trying to do for customers to teach them who you are and, and, and as a culture, or as, as, a, as a technology or an offering from what you're telling your employees. It really should be the same thing. And you can leverage both. It sounds, you know, I think from the outside of companies, you don't necessarily think about culture that much. You don't think about what companies do to create culture. Perhaps if you're starting a company, you might not be thinking that much about the importance of culture. You guys are extraordinarily invested in it. You spend a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. People, we, when we acquire companies, they come in and they're just surprised at how much we have meetings, you know, these large meetings. And, and not just like meetings about the sales, or the, but you're talking about meetings about culture. We, we combine the two. We combine the two. So we don't have a meeting just about culture, but culture is in every meeting. So that's kind of a different way of thinking about it. So there's all, it's, it's a constant investment. I think uh, sense of humor, fun, you know, enjoyment, that's part of certainly part of my personality and I think is really important in life. Uh, you know, if you spend a lot of time at work, if, if it's all serious, you know, stress, you may not live a long life and, uh, and you need it sometimes, you know, we had, we've had some serious bugs in our software that was super stressful, you know, and at some point you just need to not laugh at it because there are serious problems, but you need to have some outlets. Um, or if, you know, their mistakes are made or, problems, you need to have a little perspective. And so I think that's part of it. Freddie, Parker talks about the fact that you can't change a culture. He's like, can you change your personality? 
It'll change maybe as you grow, as you mature, but you're still the person that you were a week ago and, and so on. What does that say about how you build company culture? I think what you hear from a lot of people who've been in the industry for 10, 20, 30 years is that it's very hard to change corporate culture after you've been going for a while. I want to be honest, when we started Okta in 2009, I did not think that corporate culture was a thing that we should focus on and really emphasize as much as ultimately we did. Did you have to play catch up? We didn't really have to play catch up so much, but I give a lot of credit to Todd McKinnon, my co-founder at Okta, because he really had seen more than I had around what worked in good culture and in bad culture. And he really put a big emphasis on that. And uh, in hindsight, it was absolutely the right move. It's something that now I spend a ton of time and effort and energy on, and I think for all the right reasons, it's very hard if you ever lose that culture, it starts to degrade to get that back on the right track. So Freddie, what do you take away from all this? We've now talked to a bunch of people with a real depth of experience around company culture, a lot of different perspectives, to be honest. Well, Josh, I think what's important about company culture is that it actually represents what the founder or the founding team and or the executive team thinks. And it's not only about how they think, it's about how they should behave. Now, there's all sorts of details. Some people think about it as a family, others think about it as the exact opposite of a family. But what's the most important thing is that you think actively about culture, you create the culture you want, you espouse the beliefs that drive those kinds of values and visions, and that, that you repeat it. Because remember, in a high growth environment, you have new employees joining your company all the time. So really espousing the culture, pushing it out, encouraging all your employees to buy into it, because ultimately, they're the ones who are gonna be on the front line interacting with your customers and other employees the most, and they're the ones who need to drive it. it it's not your culture, it becomes their culture. Well, there you have it. This has been Zero to IPO's culture episode, and we'd like to give a special thanks to our guests today for taking time out of their day to talk with us, and to the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for collaborating with Okta to bring this podcast to life. If you like what you heard and you want to hear the next step in taking a company from zero to IPO, make sure to subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Frederick Harrist. And I'm Joshua Davis. And we hope you'll tune in for our next episode, Who Are All These People? Thanks for listening. When you're in a leadership position, you have to recognize that you have a megaphone strapped to your mouth and everything you say, no matter how big or small it is, you think it's 10 times that to the public market.